Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Miss the show? No worries. On point and on the podcast. Coming up, we'll talk about China issuing yet another threat to Canada, warning us to learn from our mistakes and not pass through the Taiwan Strait, or it could be seen as a provocation threatening peace. We'll talk about why our weakness to stand up to this authoritarian government keeps us at risk of having to continue to bow to their aggression. The cost of minimum wage is causing a real debate. It'll drive up, of course, costs of payroll for businesses, but it'll also possibly change consumer habits because ultimately increased costs get downloaded to the consumer. So will this drive business away? And if service staff are getting $15 an hour, does tipping go the way of the dodo bird. And we'll talk about a high-profile court case involving a man who killed a mother and her three children, which could serve a very dangerous precedent because the decision here could throw a wrench in the way we prosecute future drug-impaired driving cases. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. You can shove your climate crisis up your arse. You can shove your climate crisis up your arse. You can shove your climate crisis. You can shove your climate crisis. You can shove your climate crisis up your arse. Hey, for once I agree with Greta Thunberg. Who knew? Alex Pearson with you on this November 3rd. It's kind of catchy, is it not? Prime Minister now on his way home from the climate charades still playing out in Glasgow. Of course, uh, he had a grand old time hanging out with the world's elites who have gathered for days and days to pontificate over the threat of our extinction. You know, that we, we've got to rid the world of carbon, make sacrifices, pay more, move faster. And, um, you know, it, it never dawns on those preaching prima donnas that maybe they should actually practice what they preach. I mean, how are we to take seriously that, the, that, that we're on the cusp of of apocalypse now, given the carbon imprint of COP26 alone. I mean, surely the situation's so dire, this could possibly push us over the edge, no? I mean, you see the pictures, there's hundreds of private jets that have brought the richest of the rich into the area. I mean, doesn't that give pause for concern? No? It never seems to be a factor for the elites. After all, apparently, the carbon coming from their jets and their yachts is somehow the good kind, not not the dirty kind that we plebes are being told that we have to stop using or pay way more for. It also doesn't seem to dawn on any of these climate crusaders how the optics look to have 40,000 of the world's most elite gathering. I mean, how does that look to the rest of the world? And that is because I think these people are so completely unaware of their own hypocrisy, they just don't notice. So here we are, we're told not to travel, Stay six feet apart, wear a mask, and then you see all these pictures. You've got Trudeau, all his buddies crammed into these big parties, mask-free, consuming caviar and champagne, talking about ideas on how we, not the, need to do more, pay more, sacrifice more. And then you've got 
climate darling Greta, Greta Thunberg, uh, wasn't actually invited to any of the lavish parties this year, not this time. Um, I mean, once upon a time, she was a political darling, but now Ms. Thunberg is calling out these world leaders basically for being full of hot air. Inside COP, they're just politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, to pretending to take the present seriously of the people who are being affected already today by the climate crisis. Change is not going to come from inside there. That is not leadership. This is leadership. This is what leadership looks like. We say no more blah, blah, blah. No more blah, blah, blah. Far be it for me to agree with Grumpy Greta, but she's right. It's all blah, blah, blah. Oh boy, you know, she's also full of blah, blah, blah. I mean, she declared back in May she wasn't going to go to COP26 because of the unfair vaccination distribution all around the world. And, well, that was then and this is now. And there's no way she would actually miss an opportunity to demand action that she herself, I think, could be demanding of her own generation. Like, why is she flying into Glasgow? I mean, why are her climate supporters flying there? Why don't they just do it by Zoom? And I, yeah, sure call out the fraud being carried out by the world leaders on this issue, but why doesn't anyone in Greta Mania ever improve their own carbon crimes by simply cutting back on things like Uber Eats or giving up on their oil-produced modern conveniences that they can't live without? Doesn't the change start with them? And speaking of blah, 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 while Trudeau spent his time there making clear his disdain for Alberta, you know, crapping all over his country, completely unchallenged by those, by the way, covering his every move. Then you got former Bank of Canada governor turned climate crusader Mark Carney. He's also at COP26 telling anyone who will listen that we need $130 trillion to save the planet. And we should just assume right now that the money will be coming from us plebes through these higher carbon taxes. And he's also demanding that the banks must wean themselves off of fossil fuels, get rid of those investments. But of course, it's not before the company he runs makes billions more off of fossil fuels. And he talks a really good game. You know, he declares that his investment firm, Brookfield Asset Management, has net zero across its portfolio, yet fails to mention that Brookfield is a major investor in five major infrastructure projects that are profiting quite nicely, I'd say, right now, off of highly polluted uh, coal and oil sand sector projects as we speak. And at the start of this whole charade, you may recall that the United Nations declare that we are digging our own graves. Well, I think it would be more accurate to say that the world's elites are determined to bury us under expensive solutions that will do nothing other than force us to pay more for heat, gas, all of life's essentials. And while leaders like Boris Johnson declare that, you know, quote, we are now one minute to midnight to climate catastrophe, well, let's just see how long it takes for Mr. Johnson and his highfalutin friends to buy up as much of the world's dirtiest fossil fuels to get heat and energy to millions in Europe who are now living without. So if Justin Trudeau you know, who justifies carbon pricing as a way to force us to change our habits. I mean, maybe if that's the case, someone should ask him why he nor any of his other friends on the world stage or the celebrities, why they never change their carbon heavy habits. I mean, when I see those people making sacrifices, then maybe I will start believing 
that calamity is near. So China continues to threaten Canada because it can. Uh, the Globe and Mail reporting that during recent meetings, uh, Chinese officials told the Trudeau government that Canada shouldn't send any more military ships through the Taiwan Straits because it's seen as a provocation that threatens peace. Now, Canada has one frigate in the region, the HMCS Winnipeg, which just passed through this strait alongside a U.S. Uh, US frigate on its way to a United Nations security operation. We have a right under international laws to use this passage, which is documented. But given increased tensions between China and the U.S., which has bulked up patrols of the region to thwart off any attempt China may make in taking control of the independent island, um, China then comes after us because they know that we are weak. And so they're warning Canada that we should learn from our mistakes and not be a lapdog for the United States. And then maybe things can return to normal. Scott Simon, senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, also a professor of social sciences at the University of Ottawa, joining us now. Good to have you. Thank you for inviting me today. So this was one of those back channel meetings that is not an unusual thing, but what was different in this particular conversation is that the Chinese side brought a former high-ranking official in China's Taiwan Affairs Office, mm -hmm. and they essentially made a threat against Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is basically what they called track two dialogue, which goes on all the time. And this time they brought in someone from their Taiwan Affairs Office who, who tried to tell Ta Canada what to do about our Taiwan policy. Yeah. And our Taiwan policy is, is that, you know, we don't really stand up to them. Um, mm -hmm. But bottom line is, uh, you know, they're, they're a sovereign state. We just don't recognize it as a sovereign state. And mm -hmm. Melanie Jolie has doubled down that nothing has changed on that. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess China knows that it will be able to push around maybe the new foreign affairs minister. But they're certainly making a point uh, mm -hmm. that they don't want our ships in the region, which we only have one of. Right. Well, basically, I think it's, I'm just backtracking a little bit there, but it, it's not that we recognize them as a sovereign state or not. We don't have diplomatic relations with them, even though we know very well that they're a sovereign state and we accept their passports and we accept the NT dollar and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so basically what's happening is, uh, um, you know, the Taiwan Straits is uh, at the narrowest point. It's 160 kilometers wide, which is 70 to 100 nautical miles. And according to international law, it's the 12 nautical miles, which is the territory of the adjacent state. And so those are international waters that anybody can go through. And so I think what they're trying to do is they're just trying to find some way to break up cooperation between Canada and the United States on this. Right. In other words, your future is bright if you stick with us, if you do what we ask you to do. But, mm -hmm. you know, Scott, at some point we have to take a stance and we need to yeah. stand with Taiwan. Um, and mm -hmm. we don't seem to be willing to do that, nor do we, be, you know, nor do we seem uh, with this government uh, be, to be changing our approach. Uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. like they can continue to threaten us because they, they seem to think that they know that, that we won't push back, which we don't do. Yeah, yeah there seems to be a danger that we're going to be the lap dogs of the Chinese. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. With uh, yeah, there are certain tendencies in our government in that direction, so we have to be very careful about even the optics of that. And I, I think that the Canadian military did the right thing, and so it shows that we are there. And I would I would also mention that China uh, does the same kind of um, types of freedom of navigation operations in their perspective. Now, maybe mm. just a few days later, they sent ten of their frigates 
with uh, ten, five of their frigates with five other Russian ships, so ten ships in total, through the Tsugara Strait uh, that belongs to Japan, and is mm-hmm. far more narrower than that. It's uh, at the nearest point, it's 19.5 kilometers, and so Japan has accepted to narrow what they call their territorial waters in order to let ships pass through there. But that was a real provocation that China made on Japan. And so I think we have to be clear, who's the provocator here? And it's China that's provoking. It's China that's threatening war. Right. And they have Mm -hmm. uh, made very clear, and it hasn't been just all of a sudden. I mean, over the last couple of years, they've amassed 150 fighter jets, nuclear Mm -hmm. capable bombers. They've got anti-sub aircrafts. They've made it very clear that they Mm -hmm. want Taiwan back in their grips. Mm -hmm. And given Mm -hmm. uh, they got no pushback on Hong Kong, um, it may just be a matter of time before they make their move. Now, I don't think we're going to war. Mm -hmm. However, the United States and Australia have made clear that they're going to be in the region. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess Canada is kind of got a little player there on making sure that we got one ship in the region but yeah. where do you see this going well you know i think we can prevent a war and the way to prevent war is to show unity on our side and that means having that hmcs winnipeg right there next to the uss dewey when it's called for and this is a time when it was called for and that also means that we have to occasionally remind canadians and remind china that taiwan is a sovereign state we don't mean that we might not have diplomatic relations with them, but they are a sovereign state and they do have rights in international law. Mm-hmm. They do. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the ambassador, um, our ambassador, Mr. Barton, Dominic Barton, uh-huh. he made some odd comments uh, of late. Um, he, he said now that the emotional issues are off the table, and he, I, I, I assume he's talking about the Michaels, it's uh-huh. almost as if he's signaling that we can go back to business as usual, which we should not be doing any such thing. I, there's no appetite, um, if you've yeah. seen the polling among Canadians over uh-huh. the last couple yeah. of years, that they don't want a, a normalized relationship with China, uh-huh. given their behavior. Uh-huh. Um, and so we have to start making decisions, but mm-hmm. I don't get the sense that at the government level, we are going to be changing our approach, even though our allies in the United States, the UK, Australia mm-hmm. are all signaling they're moving on without us. Yeah, that's right. The US and Japan are all changing their approach, and they, of course, Australia and India and the European Union. And so we've got to do a serious study of what our approach is going to be. It can't go back to business as normal. And you know, no matter what, no matter what the ambassador says, I don't think the Canadian businesses are going to be on board with that. You know, maybe a few of his buddies, but not not most Canadian businesses. Yeah, I mean... uh but 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 this this ship going through um you know to this uh, UN uh, training session was it done intentionally or was this were we trying to send a message or is it just China being paranoid? Well, you know, I think that Canada's going to say it was the shortest distance between two points. And the Americans are going to say that this is a freedom of navigation exercise and it's necessary to keep those 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 seaways open. Mm-hmm. And so we'll both be explaining it in our own way. But China sees it very clearly that that Winnipeg and the Dewey were right next to one another. And so what they're really afraid of is that other countries will unite against them in some way. And they want to split apart our alliances as quickly as they can. And by sowing discord and confusion in Canada, that's, that's the way they're going to do it. 
Yeah, well, they've done it very successfully so far, um, uh-huh. and again, if they can get away with it, they will. It's interesting, um, I don't know how much basketball you watch, but a, a guy named Ennis Cantor who plays for the Boston Celtics, you go through his Twitter feed and he has been relentless talking about China, the ruthless dictator Xi Jinping, the cultish Chinese Communist Party. He says, you know, hear me loud and clear, Hong Kong will be free. Uh, he's standing with Taiwan. He has put out a series of messages to China that he will not be bullied uh, and made sure to wear footwear um, with all sorts of messaging uh, against China where he says emphatically I stand with Hong Kong I stand with Taiwan and he will not back down so you got a basketball player of all people who seems to be making and taking tougher stances and steps than let's say the Canadian government uh-huh yeah he's just been really uh, outspoken about the genocide in against the Uyghurs about the genocide that happened in Tibet about the brutal crackdown in Hong Kong and supportive of Hong Kong desires for for real autonomy and in strong support of Taiwan. So I think he really sees the the danger that China poses to the world and he's willing to speak out no matter what the cost is to him or his team because China does have a way of retaliating uh, commercially against against, sports teams. Yeah, I mean, you'll recall LeBron James made comments uh, last year at some point, and then the NBA tripped over itself to apologize to China. It doesn't look like this guy's going to apologize. And so I think it's almost like you need a guy like this to stand up to have the world say, okay, hold on a second. Uh, He's speaking. We need to listen. So maybe he'll Mm -hmm. be the kind of guy who can finally wake people up to the threat. Yeah, maybe because he's a basketball player, people will watch it. I hope it goes on way beyond Twitter, you know, and all the Instagram and Facebook and everything else so that people see it. Yeah. Well, we know that China does not like to be criticized, and they do watch uh, to see who is doing the criticizing, so we'll mm-hmm. uh, see where that goes. Thanks so much for uh, breaking this down for us, Scott. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Bye. That is Scott Simon, who's with the McDonald Laurier Institute, also a professor of uh, social sciences at the University of Ottawa. But yeah, if you watch uh, Ennis Cantor on his Twitter feed, man, he is uh, he is standing up when a lot of other people are stepping back. Good for him. This just feels like cruel and unusual punishment. I have to increase prices. I mean, I hate to do that. Indeed, indeed. But that is the reality. When you make things more expensive to run, the costs end up trickling down to we the people. So the reaction to Doug Ford's uh, hike to minimum wage has been met with anger by pretty much both business owners as well as workers. The businesses argue that they cannot be burdened with any more costs, especially at a time when they've not had a chance to recover, and it comes in at a time when they have to deal with increased CPP taxes uh, and business completely slows down. It's January. And then workers explain, well, this is way too little, way too late. But then you wonder, what does this mean for consumers who ultimately end up eating the increased costs? Will it stop people from going out as much? And given serving staff used to make the majority of their tips – and live off those. Uh, if they're getting minimum, if they're getting now a fifteen dollar minimum wage, are tips going away of the dodo bird? Tony Alanis is president and CEO of Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. He joins us now. Good to have you. Good evening, Alex. What has the reaction been? Um, overwhelming kind of opinion uh, on this latest policy decision. Well, there's an uproar in the industry. No doubt about it. Much frustration. The industry has been locked down and, and, and really restricted for 20 months now. And the current road to recovery, 
looks even tougher. They, they pay much higher expenses in food. Insurance rates are renewed at a high price. The whole supply chain has driven costs up. Labor has gone up even before this announcement. And this announcement came out of nowhere with no consultation with any group in the industry. And the industry is wondering if government really cares about, about keeping them open. Some people will say, well, look, if a business can't afford to pay work, you know, workers a couple of bucks more, then they shouldn't be in business. What do you say back to that kind of uh, narrative? Well, let me, let me just uh, make sure that we clarify what we're concerned with the most and the vast majority of the industry is concerned. It is not about the general minimum wage going up to $15. It is supported by inflation. There's a workforce shortage. The people deserve it. They work hard. The main issue here by most is the liquor server rate being eliminated yep. and moving up mm-hmm. around 20%. And, and, and what that does, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's about financial, absolutely, but it also brings in a critical issue of inequality and making it worse because the servers who make tips make much mm-hmm. healthier wages than the support staff, including cooks, who many right. of them have built careers, came from culinary schools, and, and now there's going to be a, a, a huge discrepancy between the two teams, and both teams work very hard. Yeah, I mean, when I was a server back in the day, the minimum wage was three sixty-five, if I'm remembering it correctly. But I didn't even care about a paycheck because it was known that you'd go in, make really big tips, and that would be money in your pocket, and 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 it basically subsidized for what you didn't make in the minimum wage. But if if a server now is making fifteen dollars an hour, I would have to think a lot of consumers are going to start thinking, well, why am I tipping you now? Because I think you know, most people gave a tip to make up for uh, the lower wages. But what is the incentive now for consumers who are going to be saying, well, I'm paying more for the food, paying more for the booze because right. all the costs are, are, are high. But why should I then tip my server who's making $15 an hour? Alex, I came from that school. I was a server. And, and that was mm-hmm. uh, what, what my income was. I was even concerned mm-hmm. about what was my paycheck. Now, there are right. jurisdictions, Australia being one of them, where they seem wages um, go up, and yes, tipping mm-hmm. has been uh, slowed down, uh, and, and consumers are not tipping as much, period. Uh, for mm-hmm. us, is to see what happens in Ontario, but I'm really concerned because, you know, we've studied this, and we've done many, many, many surveys and, and talked to many restaurateurs, and it does point out that the inequality exists. It brings morale issues. It brings HR issues, and at the end of the day, it's about yeah. employee satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of complexities because when it comes to the whole tipping part, you know, the, it's changed and it's different for every um, establishment. But, you know, you, you, as a server, you, you tip out to the kitchen, you tip out to the uh, the busboy, you tip out to the house. I mean, there's a number of different ways that you can do it. Um, but all those systems would have to change. But it'll also, won't it, Tony, make it harder to even hire? I mean, right now there's a labor shortage and it's very difficult to find people to go into hospitality uh, just because they're not sure about the... the um, the stability of it, but also a lot of people have left because they had to and they've gone into different work. So how much harder is it going to be then for a restaurant, let's say, to say, here, we'll pay you 15 bucks an hour, but you probably won't make much tips. That to me would be, um, I wouldn't want to be a server if I couldn't make tips or, or be assured to make tips. 
Well, a couple of comments on that. Even before COVID, the number one position that was needed in the food service industry was the position of cook, and it, and it continues to be. And secondly, uh, with with the work uh, shortages coming out of COVID, many restaurateurs stepped up to the plate and have paid higher wages voluntarily. They have included perks, some of them unheard of in the restaurant industry, independents have put benefits mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in. All that is going to go yeah. away. They will not be able to afford it. And, 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 and that's, you know, every action has a reaction. And so looking forward, because this is obviously not going to go away, um, you know, there's an election coming. How do you see this further transforming a labor market that has been absolutely turned on its head um, during the last 19 months, where where do you see the path taking us as small businesses just either try to hang on or try to figure out a way to navigate um, uh, an industry that doesn't at all look like it did? Well, this industry right now is in an uproar. It's in a disarray. Uh, the industry has been waiting for something more positive. It's not about the grants that have been given out of uh, you know, $20,000 here, $20,000. This industry has suffered enormously in a razor thin margin industry. They paid a lot in the safety protocols. Of course, being locked down, you have still have to pay your fixed cost. Now they're paying loans and, and much more expensive than before COVID. So what the government needs to do now, and, and we are driving something that would help them, and to mitigate these higher expenses is to bring in meaningful tangible programs and plants that would flow down to the bottom line, like beverage alcohol pricing reduction. Three quarters of all restaurants mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are licensed and can benefit enormously if, if, if the government steps up to the plate, like British Columbia has done, like yeah. Nova Scotia has done. Well, that it hasn't been done uh, yet is, is kind of confounding to me. And, you know, the fact that you guys have to pay retail prices um, and you don't get the wholesale price has never made much sense. I mean, the and so, cost, yeah. beverage control is under beverage control um, is, is an, an area the government can help. Uh, property tax and rent is something that can still be implemented. I know they've done something mm-hmm. in the 2020 budget. But more can be done to uh, ensure they mitigate these higher uh, uh, rates. And just before I let you go, Tony, and I don't know if the data is available or if it's been uh, compiled yet, but do we know what kind of loss we're talking as far as restaurants uh, and bars in Ontario over the pandemic? I mean, when you hear guys like Mark McEwen are struggling and, and you're starting to see some of the real big, highly established um, restaurateurs uh, struggling, what do you think we're looking at as far as loss uh, you well, know, in the next few months? Well, during the pandemic, we've lost anywhere between 10 to 15 percent uh, restaurants. And the reason for that, there were no, you know, the industry was sort of waiting for the green light. They're waiting for hope. Now we've mm-hmm. gone into a very tough road, and this has happened. Uh, you know, it was estimated that about 30, 40 percent might close down, but it's too early now with this decision to try to evaluate where we're going. But I can, I can state that in 2020, it's the first year that there are less independent restaurants now operating in Ontario than brands. That gives you uh, the state of affairs and who is going to be hurt most by this decision. Yeah, well, communities, cities, and uh, a lot of of families. Yeah. Yeah. 
Small business that drives the country. Tony, I appreciate your time on this. We'll have you on again, and obviously we'll continue watching the situation. Very much appreciate your time. Thank you, and have a great night. You too. That's Tony Alanis, who's with the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel, and Motel Association. So, hey, smart politics doesn't always make smart policy, uh, and it's certainly going to come at a cost. And that does not mean I don't believe that people don't deserve a fair wage, but it's got to make sense. This is a story that's um, kind of falling under the radar, but it shouldn't because it's a big case and there's a lot of um, consequences to whatever the outcome of it is. We're talking about the man accused of killing 36-year-old Carolina Chisulo and her three daughters in uh, an incident where his car rammed her SUV and has now been found guilty of impaired driving. But while the judge ruled Brady Robertson was over the legal limit for marijuana, the judge wouldn't go as far as to say his impairment affected his ability to drive. And because of that, his convictions could be overturned on a charter challenge launched by Robertson, whose lawyers argued current impairment laws, when it comes to drug, violate the charter. Kath McDonald is our global news radio legal uh, expert, our crime specialist. Uh, this is one of those very confusing cases, Kath, because there are two different matters. There's the incident where... Uh, Carolina Chisulo and her three daughters were killed, but this man also was involved in an incident a couple of days earlier, and he's already pleaded guilty to four counts of dangerous driving causing um, the mother and children's death, but he did not plead guilty to the charge of impaired driving, despite being eight times over the legal blood limit of, of THC. So he's convicted, but he's not convicted because on the <laughs> impaired charge, it could be overturned, which... Can you just flesh it through a little bit? Because it does get confusing as to how we got oh, here. You should have been in court yesterday, Alex, when this all happened. <laughs> it's one of those cases was, where I'm, I'm happy I wasn't. Honestly, yeah. I was just in court in Toronto today on a murder uh, trial, and I was telling a senior crown, I said, gosh, I wish I had gotten to law school, but <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mm -hmm. do well on the LSAT, uh, much to the chagrin of my father, who was a judge. And I can tell you, I re yesterday when the uh, verdict came down uh, on the impaired causing death charges related to Carolina, Clara, Mila, Liliana, Chisulo. Um, and, you know, I, I, I thought to myself, I, I think that she found him not guilty. And I, I, but I, at first I said, no, no, it's, he, they're guilty. He's guilty. And then I said to my producer, no, no, not guilty. And I actually had to call a colleague. There were only a few of us, uh, two, two reporters from the newspapers and myself listening to this verdict. Um, and I said to my colleague, who I, I really look up to, Michelle Mandel from the Toronto Sun, I said, so did you get that yeah, as not guilty? Out. She said, yeah, not guilty. And we had both written the Crown and the defense. And the Crown came back, Patrick Quilty, and he said, no. Uh, Robertson was found guilty of impaired pending the outcome of the constitutional challenge. And the way that uh, Craig Bottomley, the defense, explained it to me, which, you know, in, in his words was, think of it this way. There's an over 80 charge when it comes to alcohol, and then there's an impaired charge. She found him guilty of being over five nanograms of THC per milliliter of blood, which is the legal definition of impaired. But she said, mm -hmm. I have reasonable doubt that Brady Robertson was, in fact, impaired uh, at the time of the collision. And, you know, and that's because, think about it, the, one of the other ways that an officer can tell someone's impaired is you get out of a car, you stumble, you fall over, your eyes are dilated. But in this case, he had two broken legs.
The, and mm-hmm. it, he didn't sound impaired, according to the officer. The officer testified at trial did not say he sounded impaired. So he didn't appear to be impaired. And he had, as you said, 40 nanograms uh, of THC per milliliter of blood, eight, eight times the legal limit. That dropped three hours after the crash, about two hours after the first test, by 15 nanograms. So he was still five times over the legal limit. The judge said, I find it very likely that he smoked or he consumed cannabis between 7 and 9 a.m. on that morning. The crash happened at 12.15. But Mm -hmm. the problem, and this is what the constitutional challenge is all about, is if you were a chronic user of marijuana, Alex, you can have marijuana, THC, in your blood for up to a week. And after listening to the defense... you could have it in your muscle for over a month. Yeah, because it it goes into, you know, it, it, it... it takes a long time for it to get out of your blood. And, and they can't test right. the blood THC in your brain. It goes to your brain, and the only way they can test the blood THC in your brain is in, during an autopsy. So that's not happening unless you die in a crash. Um, and, and in this case, um, and, and really what it says is, the, you know, and the defense is arguing that the way that we test for impairment by THC is flawed. And when the Crown right. uh, toxicologist got in the stand during the constitutional challenge, and was asked, do you agree with everything you heard? And she said just about everything. She agreed that really um, the test for impairment of, by THC uh, is not an exact science. And you can be false. You, you can have a high level of THC in your system and not be impaired. Or you can have a little bit of THC in your system under five nanograms and be impaired. So, right. you know, at the end of the day, he is guilty because the legal definition says if you have five nanograms, of THC per milliliter of blood, you are impaired. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily impaired. So that's what this is all about. And, and as you said, um, if this happens, the ramifications for every case going forward and sure. even, you know, is massive. And, and it's a lot to get your head around that. How can he be convicted but not? I mean, yeah. uh, there was a very misleading front page in the Toronto Sun today, which said something like he could walk free. Well, let's be honest. Brady Robertson has not been free since the day of the collision. He was arrested in hospital six days after the crash where he was recovering from broken teeth and two broken legs. And he's been in jail since then. And, you know, my biggest issue with that is it's been a year and a half almost. And we know he's going to get a lot of dead time, which means he's mm-hmm. going to get credit for pretrial custody. Let's say he does get convicted of dangerous driving. Well, we know he's going to get the dangerous causing death and the dangerous operation for two days before when he was in Caledon. And there was this video that we was shown in court in which we had at the time showing this man in a blue infinity, apparently looking inebriated behind the wheel, passed out. He goes up on the sidewalk, a bunch of bystanders try to stop him. The, the, the passenger door of the car is open. He suddenly comes to, puts the car in reverse, speeds off. He was found guilty of that. So these five counts, let's say he let's say he only is convicted of the five and not the impaired cause death. Let's say he gets yeah, five no, years. He'll be he'll be out. Like, yeah, he'll be out in like two years. I got less than two he's minutes, get but I want to talk dead time here for this. Yeah, he's going to get a lot of, of course. Pre-trial custody. Yeah, because when it comes to vehicular um, homicide, which we don't call it that in this country. I mean, it's it's bad. We don't give out stiff enough sentences as it is. But, you know, this was always a concern when Paul was legalized is that we don't have proper testing for it. It's not a, a, something you can really test for. And so this is a very consequential case because should the decision be thrown out, boy, oh boy, is it going to be hard to uh, deal with future drug-impaired driving cases. I mean, it's just going to be a nightmare. Uh, yeah, for sure. And, and in fact, when I was talking to a, a, an older Crown attorney today at the Superior Courthouse in Toronto, he said when uh, the impaired driving laws came in for alcohol, 
the same arguments were made that the testing was was an inaccurate science. So it'll be interesting yeah. to watch to see what happens here. And certainly, um, I'm fascinated by this case uh, and and the, this uh, constitutional challenge and what will happen to these impaired cause death charges. It's certainly one of those cases that uh, justice uh, could be denied. And, and uh, if it is, boy, oh, boy, uh, what a horrid cost of life to these yeah, women yeah. And, and, and these and, old girls. And, so, yeah. And this family, the Chisula family, I mean, they, I keep in touch with them. And uh, Michael, who lost his whole family, uh, you know, mm-hmm. he, he's never there. He doesn't want he does not want to be uh, the face of, you know, a man who lost his wife and children and his his uh, his uh, Con- Carolina's sister and sister-in-law are very much involved. They're, they're watching this case very carefully, and, and they just want to see justice done. And we know, sadly, they won't probably get any justice. How, how do you replace four lives? You can't. Yeah, exactly. Little girls at that. Yeah, it is a, a tragedy. So appreciate you trying to fill in the blanks. It's a very complex um, issue, but it does have huge consequential ramifications uh, across this country. We will continue watching. Kath, I appreciate it. I know you've had Thank a couple you. of long days, so I appreciate it. That's Catherine McDonald, who is our global news radio, uh, um, global news uh, crime expert. So she knows her stuff. But boy, that's a big case. And uh, hope they get it right. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.